Chapter Ten, Part Two of From Sail to Steam by Alfred Thayer Mahan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, China and Japan, eighteen sixty seven to eighteen sixty nine, Part Two. When our seamen returned, a conference was held wherein it was determined, as a joint international measure, to hold the concession in force and as a further means of protection to close the tokaido which was done by occupying the angles of a short elbow of two hundred yards made by it in traversing the town this step while justifiable from the point of view of safety for the residents was particularly galling to japanese high-class feeling for the use of the imperial road was associated with certain privileges to the daimyos during whose passing the common people were excluded or obliged to kneel under penalty of being cut down on the spot satsuma was reported to have remonstrated but in view of the recent occurrence there could be no reply to the foreign retort you must secure our people the custom-house within the concession was garrisoned making a fortification very tenable against any enemy likely to be brought against it while round it was thrown up a light earthwork to which the seamen and marines dispersed in the concession would retire in case of need but behind all invulnerable stood the ships deterred from aggression only by fear for their own people which would cease to operate if these had to be withdrawn the action of this body of samurai was probably unpremeditated unless possibly in the mind of the particular officer in charge who afterwards paid with his life for the misconduct of his men while the state of siege continued a complete stop was put to our horseback excursions in the country a deprivation the more felt because coinciding with an unusually fine spell of weather but in a few days an envoy arrived from the insurgent daimyos with whom a settlement was speedily reached Chiosio, and satsuma had by this time succeeded in establishing themselves as the real representatives of the mikado an authority in virtue of which alone the tycoon had ruled the true headship of the mikado being admitted by all they undertook that foreigners should be adequately protected and that the officer responsible for the late outrage should be punished with death by the twentieth of february kobe was full of chiosiu and satsuma samurai who were as courteously civil as those of the tycoon had been and after a conference with the special envoy of the mikado the ministers returned to osaka we too resumed our country rides but still waited with a huge navy revolver no doubt on any hand was felt of the sincere purpose of the new government to fulfil its pledges but their troops were still ill-organized and it was impossible to rest assured that they might not here and there break bounds as at kobe we were encountering the accustomed uncertainties of a period of revolutionary transition intensified by prejudices engendered through centuries of national isolation with all the narrowing and deepening of prepossession which accompanies entire absence of intercourse with other people at this very moment in march eighteen sixty eight the decree against the practice of christianity by the natives was reissued hitherto the christian religion has been forbidden and the order must be strictly kept 
the corrupt religion is strictly forbidden yet i am persuaded that already far-seeing japanese had recognized that the past had drifted away irrevocably and that the only adequate means to meet the inevitable was to accept it fully without grudging and to develop the nation to equality with foreigners in material resources but such anticipation is the privilege of the few in any age or any country very soon after the return of our men from the garrison duty an outbreak of smallpox on board the iroquois compelled her being sent to yokohama where as an old-fashioned port were hospital facilities not to be found in kobe uh, though we had succeeded in removing the first cases to crude accommodations on shore the disease was then very prevalent in japan where vaccination had not yet been introduced and to an unaccustomed eye it was startling to note in the streets the number of pitted faces a visible demonstration of what a european city must have presented before inoculation was practised one of our crew had died and when we started february twenty fifth we had on board some sick they were carefully isolated under the airy tagallant forecastle and with a good passage the contagion might not have spread but the second day out the weather came on bad and very thick ending with a gale so violent that to save the lives of the patients they had to be taken below and then for the safety of the ship which was single-decked the hatches had to be battened down conditions more favorable to the spread of the malady could not have been devised and the result was that we were not fairly clear of the epidemic for nearly two months though the cases of which we had fifteen or twenty were sent ashore as fast as they developed at that period few ships on the station wholly escaped the scourge it was after we left kobe that judicial satisfaction was given for the attack upon the foreign concession my account depends upon the reports which reached us but as the captain of the oneida was one of the official witnesses on the part of the international interests concerned i presume that what we heard was nearly correct the final scene was in a temple near hiogo being of the class of nobles the condemned had a privilege of the peerage which ensured for him the honorable death of the harakiri a distinction apparently analogous to that which our soldiers of european tradition draw between hanging and shooting having duly performed acts of devotion suited to the place and to the occasion he spoke justifying his action and saying that under similar circumstances he would again do the same he then partly disrobed assisted by friends and when all was ready stabbed himself a comrade who had stood by with drawn sword at the same instant cutting off his head with a single blow i was tempted by curiosity once while on the station to attend the execution of some ordinary criminals and i can testify to the deftness and instantaneousness with which one head fell in the flash of a sword or the twinkling of an eye i did not care to view the fates of the three others condemned but it was clear that no judicial death could be more speedy and merciful nearly coincident with this exacted vengeance occurred an incident which demonstrated its policy a boat's crew from a french ship of war had gone ashore to survey unarmed they were accosted by a well-dressed man wearing two swords 
who suggested to them going up to a village near the spot where they were at work. They accepted, and were led by him into an ambush where eleven of them, all but one, were slain. So there was another great funeral at Hyogo, but one which excited emotions far otherwise mournful than the simple sorrow and sympathy elicited by the bell disaster. The graveyard of the place was indeed a good start. The assassins in this case belonged to the troops of the insurgent daimyos, and as the French already favored the tycoon, which perhaps may have been one motive for the attack, some apprehension was felt that they might in consequence espouse his cause more actively. Nothing of the sort happened. I presume all the legations and their nations felt that at the moment the solidarity of the foreign interest was more important to be secured than the triumph of this or that party. By abstaining from intervention, all the embassies could be counted on to back a united demand for reparation for injuries to the citizens of any one. With the arrival of the Iroquois at Yokohama, the notable incidents of the cruise for the most part came to an end. There followed upon it the routine life of a ship of war, with its ups and downs of more or less pleasant ports, good and bad weather, and the daily occupations which make and maintain efficiency. Yokohama itself was then the principal and most flourishing foreign settlement in Japan, the seat of the legations, and with an agreeable society sufficiently large. Among other features, we here found again in force the British soldier, a battalion of eight hundred being permanently in garrison. The country about was thought secure, though for distant excursions requiring a whole day we carried revolvers, and I remember well the scuttling away of several pretty young women when one of these was accidentally discharged at a wayside tea-house. But while occasional rumors of danger would spread, it was hard to tell whence I think nothing of a serious nature occurred. Nevertheless, albeit resentment and hostility were repressed in outward manifestation by the strong hand of the government, and by the examples of punishment already made, they were still burning beneath the surface. It was during this period that the British minister visiting Kyoto a concession jealously resisted by conservative Japanese spirit, was set upon by some ronins while on his way to pay an official call. He was guarded by British cavalry and marines, and had besides an escort of samurai. It was said at the time that these fled, except the officers, who fought valiantly, slaying one and beating down the other of the two most desperate assailants. Considering the well-established courage of the Japanese, and that the attack was by their own people, sympathy with the attempt seems the most likely explanation of the faithlessness reported. The immediate effect of this was to curtail our privileges of riding about the country of Yokohama. Perhaps the most notable incident, uh, historically, of our stay in Yokohama was the arrival of the first ironclad of the Japanese Navy to which it has fallen a generation later to give the most forcible lesson yet seen of ironclads in battle. This vessel had been the Confederate ram Stonewall, and prior to her acquisition by Japan had had a curiously checkered career of ownership. She was built in Bordeaux under the name Sphinx, 
by contract between a French firm and the Confederate naval agent in Europe. But some difficulty arose between the parties, and in 1864 Denmark, being then at war with Austria and Prussia concerning the Schleswig-Holstein duchies, bought her under certain conditions. With a view to delivery to the Danish government, she was taken to a Swedish port, and after a nominal sale proceeded under the Swedish flag to Copenhagen, where she remained in charge of a banker of that city. Peace having been meanwhile declared, Denmark no longer wanted her. The sale was nullified under pretext of failure in the conditions, and she passed finally into the hands of the Confederacy. Sailing from Copenhagen, January 7, 1865. Off Quiberon, in France, she received a crew from another vessel under Confederate direction, and thence attempted to go to the Azores, but was forced by bad weather into Ferrol. From there she crossed the Atlantic, but by the time of her arrival the War of Secession was ended by the surrenders of Lee and Johnson. Her commander took her to Havana, and there gave her up to the Spanish authorities. Spain, in turn, in due time, delivered her to the United States as the legal heir to all spoils of the Confederacy. Several years later, in 1871, I had a share in bringing home part of uh, these often useless trophies, the ship in which I was, having gone to Europe without guns, loaded with provisions to supply the needs of the French poor, presumed to be suffering from the then recent war with Germany. Our cargo discharged, we were sent to Liverpool, and there took on board some rifled cannon and projectiles originally made for the South. The Stonewall had been lying at the Washington Navy Yard when I was stationed there in 1866. Measured by today's standards, she was of trivial power, small in size, moderate in speed, light in armor and armament, but her ram was of formidable dimensions, and at that period the tactical value of the ram was estimated much more highly than it now is. The disastrous effect of the thrust, if successfully made, outweighed in men's minds the difficulty of hitting an error of valuation similar to that which has continuously exaggerated the danger from torpedo-craft of all kinds. After the sailing of the Iroquois, a deputation of Japanese officials came to the United States on a mission, part of which was to buy ships of war. In reply to their inquiries, Commander, now Rear Admiral, George Brown, then Ordnance Officer of the Yard, pointed out the Stonewall to them as a vessel suitable for their immediate purposes, and with which our government might probably part. He also expressed a favorable opinion of her sea-going qualities for reaching Japan. A few days later they came to him and said that as he thought well of her, perhaps he would undertake to carry her out, their own seamanship at that early date being unequal to the responsibility. Now, this was more than was anticipated by Brown interested in his present duties, but it rather put him on his mettle. And so he set forth, a satisfactory pecuniary arrangement having been concluded. She went by way of the Strait of Magellan and the Hawaiian Islands, reaching Yokohama without other incident than constant ducking. As one of her officers said, clothes needed not to be scrubbed. A soiled garment could be simply secured on the forward deck, and left there to wash in the water that came on board until it was clean. 
I have never known her subsequent fortunes in Japanese hands, but as the beginning of their armored navy, she has a place in history. And here. From Yokohama, the Iroquois returned to Kobe, and there lay during July, August, and September, so that in our two visits I passed five months in this part of the inland sea. The summer, in its way, is there as pleasant as the winter in its. The highest thermometer I read was 87 degrees Fahrenheit, and there was almost always a pleasant breeze. The country was now so far safe that we went everywhere within reasonable reach of the concession, and the scenery presented such variety and sameness as to be a perpetual source of enjoyment. The most striking characteristics are the views of the enclosed sea itself, ample in expanse, yet without the monotony attendant upon an unbounded water view, and when that disappears follows the succession of enclosed valleys, alike yet different, a recurring feature similar, though on another scale, to that presented by the valley of the inn on the ride from Zurich to Innsbruck. How far away those days are is seen from my noting on one of them, while visiting what was known to us as the Moon Temple. The ships of war below were dressed in honor of the first Napoleon's birthday, August 15th, an observation which ceased with the Empire. This time I managed an opportunity of seeing Osaka, which the disturbed conditions had prevented my doing during our winter stay. Description I shall avoid, as always. Enough to say that the flatness of the site in low land, six miles from the mouth of the narrow winding river, makes the city one of canals, like Venice and Amsterdam. In visiting the great castle of the Tycoon, a stone fortification notable not only for its size, but for the dimensions of the huge single stones of which it is built. We went by boat, following a sluggish watercourse, an eighth of a mile wide, and so shallow that we poled through it. The pull from the bar to the city was very tedious, and Kobe evidently had proved the better commercial situation. For even now, half a year after the opening of the port, we were looked upon with curiosity were followed by crowds which stopped if we stopped, moved when we moved. To the children we were objects of apprehension. They eyed us fearfully, and scuttled away rapidly if we made any feint at rushing toward them. Nevertheless, the prevailing tone among the common people was now plainly kindly. Although six months before they would at times spit at foreigners from the bridges which in great numbers spanned the streams, the temper of those who form mobs changes lightly. It is true that in our excursions we were accompanied by an armed guard, which would seem to indicate possibilities of danger. But these samurai themselves were not only courteous, but interested and smiling, and I thought gave good promise that their class in general was coming round to friendliness. We left Kobe toward the end of September, in company with a new flagship which had arrived to take the place of the Hartford. This vessel rejoiced to call herself Piscataqua, which is worth recording as a sample of a class of name then much affected by the powers that were, presumably on account of their length. Fine flourishers, to quote the always illustrative Boatswain Chucks, as long as their homeward-bound pendants which in a calm drop in the water alongside. Piscataqua, however uncouth, 
most Americans can place. But what shall we say of Amanusuk, Wampanoag, and such like, then adorning our lists, which seemed as though extracted by a fine-tooth comb drawn through the tangle of Indian nomenclature? Under the succeeding administration, Piscataqua was changed to Delaware. The new commander-in-chief was among our most popular officers, distinguished alike for seamanship, courage, and courtesy. But he held to great secrecy as to his intentions, which caused officers more inconvenience than seemed always quite necessary. Questions of mess stores, of correspondence, and other prearrangements depend much upon knowledge of future movements, as exact as may not interfere with service emergencies. These in peace times rarely require concealment. A characteristic story ran that as the two vessels were leaving Kobe, when the flagship's anchor was away, her captain, still ignorant of her destination, turned to the admiral and said, Which way shall I lay her head, sir? It turned out that we were bound for Nagasaki on our way to China. The approaching northeast monsoon, with its dry, bracing air, dictates the period when foreign squadrons usually go south. Having during the summer in Japan avoided the debilitating damp heat, which those months entail in Shanghai, Hong Kong, and the Chinese ports generally. The Iroquois, however, had soon to separate from the flagship, owing to news received of a singular occurrence, savoring more of two hundred years ago, or of today's dime novel, shilling shocker, as our British brethren have it, than of the prosaic nineteenth century. There had arrived in Hakodate, the northernmost of the then-open Japanese ports, on the island of Yezo and the Strait of Sungaru, a mysterious bark, without name or papers, peopled only by Chinese of the coolie class, and bearing evident marks of foul play. From indications she was supposed to be American, and our ship, being the most immediate available, was ordered up to investigate leaving Nagasaki October 24, 1868. Our course took us over the ground, which has since become historic, by the destruction of Rogestensky's fleet, as well as by other incidents of the Russo-Japanese War, and the weather we had, both going and returning, would justify the anxiety said to have been felt by the Japanese naval authorities that Port Arthur should be taken before the winter set in. Like men, ships must do their work at whatever cost but like men also and perhaps even more they should be spared needless strain especially if they be few a sick ship needs usually more time for recovery than a sick man our orders directed a stop at a port called niigata on the west coast of nippon we must have communicated for i thence dispatched a letter but at the time of our arrival a furious northwest gale was blowing dead on shore. The ship, therefore, ran under a largest island called Sado, which much to our convenience lies a few miles to seaward of Niigata, and there anchored, quietly enough as to wind, though gusty willy-waws descending from the cliffs and swishing the water in pretty whirlwinds testified to the commotion outside. We had quite the same experience returning to Shanghai, but at that time in mid-sea, where the Iroquois, powerless as to steam, but otherwise as much at home as the sea-fowl, rode it out gleefully, 
though I admit not luxuriously, to flesh and muscles. On November 1st we reached Hakodate, where our captain and council, aided by the Japanese authorities, proceeded at once with their investigation. The strange vessel was in as distressed condition, almost, as that of the ancient mariner, when he drew near his own country, sails gone, rigging flying loose, one of her Tagalan masts, if I remember right, snapped in two, and the exterior of her hull as though neither paint nor soap had known it for years. In her cabins were marks of blood, not eradicated, and particularly on the transom over the stern windows was the print of a bloody hand. The fingers spread wide as they rested against the paint, suggesting resistance by one being thrust out. The story, so far collected from the coolies, was that they had sailed in her from Macau, a Portuguese port near Canton and Hong Kong, and that the captain and crew, after taking her far north in the ice, had abandoned her altogether. In support of this part of the story they showed furs procured from the natives. These gave plausibility to the ice experiences, but the rest of the account, unlikely in itself, had been disproved by inquiry in Macau, where nothing was known of any vessel answering to the descriptions. At last, however, a rumor had come, how conveyed I know not, that such a bark with coolies and twelve thousand dollars in gold on board had sailed from Calao in Peru the previous January, and had never since been heard from, that she had a Peruvian captain and crew, but carried American colors, probably merely as indicating American property. To claim full American privilege, ships must be American-built, but one bought abroad and owned by Americans may carry the flag in proof of nationality, though without the right of entering an American port like those to the manner born. They thus become entitled to the same national regard as any other possessions of American citizens under foreign jurisdiction. So information stood when the Iroquois arrived, false on one hand and on the other vague, Soon after the captain and council began their investigation, they stumbled upon the vessel's papers, concealed in a manner which had hitherto baffled careful search. These showed that she was the missing Kayalti, which on the previous January 18th had cleared from Calao for another Peruvian port, that she was American in ownership, while the captain and crew were Spanish in name. This fixed her identity but how account for the disappearance of the ship's company, and for her presence in Hakodate on the other side of the Pacific, three thousand miles north of Calao? To this inquiry the captain and consul addressed themselves in the cabin of the Iroquois. Two or three Japanese two-sworded officials were in attendance, and memory recalls their grave, impassive faces, as seen at times when some routine communication called me in to speak to our captain contracted though the captain's quarters were the unaccustomed scene absent from their companions and from the familiar surroundings of their probable crime was calculated to impress the culprits and the methods pursued to investigate admissions savoured i fancy more of the orient than of modern anglo-saxon ideals but the present functions of our officials corresponded to those of the french juge d'instruction 
and having to elicit the truth from a low class of orientals they dealt with them after the fashion which alone they would recognize as serious the witnesses began of course by lying in the most transparent manner but under judicious or judicial pressure a story was pieced together which in main outline probably corresponded with the truth for in it three or four of them independently agreed two days out from Kalau, the coolies had risen against the whites and after a short fight overpowered them of the crew two jumped overboard the rest submitted a boat was then lowered and the men in the water were killed after which the others were tied together made fast to an anchor and so thrown into the sea the mate who had fought desperately having first been mutilated by cutting off his ears the captain and a chinese steward were saved the former to handle the ship to which the coolies were unequal and he was bidden to take her to china i do not find in my contemporary letters the impression which remains on my mind that they estimated his general observance of this order by the vague knowledge that china lay toward the evening sun the history of that strange voyage would be interesting but was scarcely recoverable in detail from the class of witnesses it would be by no means certain that the master of a coastwise trader could navigate accurately and while he would always be sure of death if he brought the vessel within reach of china it is not apparent why he should take her to the remote north in which the firs showed her to have been i have never heard whether as the evidence ran he and the steward escaped alive abandoning the ship he had disappeared when the japanese found her drifting helplessly under her ignorant occupants while in hakodate i availed myself of the opportunity to visit a great lake and a volcano not extinct but not immediately active they are distant about fifteen miles from the town a position in which i see such a sheet of water on the maps to-day this was a long ride in the then state of the roads after the autumn rains and with nightly freeze sufficient continually to fix the moisture and then to renew the dampness toward the noonday thaw transport was not by wheel but by pack animals and as these marched in companies of a half dozen or so in single file haltered one to the other each as he stepped put his foot into the prints made not merely by his immediate file leader of the particular gang but by all others going and coming for weeks before the consequence was a succession of scallops distributed over long stretches of mud the consistency of which just sufficed to hold the shape thus impressed upon it japanese horses are small and as a class quarrelsome the one i rode on this occasion was little larger than a child's pony and looked as if he had not been curried for a month i hesitated to impose upon him my weight a scruple which would have been intensified had i known the character of the pilgrimage through which he was to bear me with his feet at the bottom of the scallop the rounded top rose above his knee nearly giving his patient nose the touch which his dejected mood and drooping head seemed to invite at the first start he stumbled nearly falling on me but escaped with nostrils and a mouth full of liquid dirt a day to go a day to come and one intervening to cross the lake and ascend the volcano measured our excursion through the whole of which we had sunny skies and exhilarating temperature till the last hour of our return 
when a drizzling rain suggested what uh, might have been our discomfort had the heavens above been as unpropitious as the roads beneath. Even the crossing of the lake and the ascent were particularly favored, the sky literally cloudless and water-smooth, whereas the following morning, when we rose to depart, a fog had settled on the mountain, making movement upon it doubtful and even to a slight degree dangerous. The lake, some six miles by ten, and abounding in islets, lay smiling under the bright wintry sun, its shores clad with leafless forests mingled with evergreens, save the barren slopes of the volcano itself. Beneath the distant lava stream, of which we were told seventeen hundred people lay, buried by the last eruption. The scene tempted me more than most to description, for the brilliant stillness of a clear November day and the gaunt bare trees were strange to our long experience of verdure in southern Japan, and smacked strongly of home, Hakodate being in the latitude of New York. But, as always, the majority have their own vision, their own memory, of just such conditions and surroundings more vivid for them than another's portrayal. The two nights at the lake we slept in a Japanese tea-house, scrupulously clean and quite comfortable, but at that early date and remote region entirely primitive. I should say strictly native in all its arrangements. The kitchen was innocent of European suggestion. We ate with chopsticks, and fish from the lake were spitted and cooked around a fire in a sandy hearth, contrived below the middle of the room. Eggs were in abundance, but coffee was sorely missing at our chilly rising. At 9 a.m. we started for the volcano, getting back at 7 p.m. We landed at the foot of the lava stream, and ascended by it through a picture of desolation. From shore to summit took us three hours, which confirmed to me a rough estimate of the height of about 4,000 feet. The grade was not severe, some 30 or 40 degrees, but by this time we had a brisk northwest wind blowing down our throats, and the latter part of the way our feet sank deep in volcanic dust. At the top the air was very cold, keen and rare, but somewhat oppressive to the lungs. None of us cared to smoke after eating and drinking, but the view afforded us was perfect, limitless, so far as atmospheric conditions went. In appearance the crater differed little, I presume, from others in a state of quiescence. Smoke and steam poured forth continually in one spot in large volumes, while from many places issued little jets, such as puff out of the outdoor pipes of a factory, suggesting subterranean workmen. These were especially numerous from a large mound in the center, which our guide told us was growing bigger and bigger with his successive visits, portending an outburst near. If his observation was accurate, it goes to show the coincident sympathetic movements which occur in volcanic regions remote from one another. For this year, 1868, followed one of great terrestrial disturbance. In 1867, two of our naval vessels had been carried ashore by a tidal wave in the West Indies, and two others lying off Arica, Peru, one was dashed to pieces against the cliffs, while the other was carried over low, flat ground for a mile or so inland, where her dismantled hull was still lying, when I was there in 1884. 
our starting when we did as soon as possible three days after arrival justified the nelsonian maxim not to trifle with a fair wind for we just culled the three days which were the cream and only cream of our stay from our return on the sixth to sailing on the twelfth there was but one fair twenty-four hours the rest from blustering to furious and we went out with the promise of a gale which did not with evening in the west sink smilingly forsworn the iroquois ran through tsugaro strait under canvas with a barometer rather tumbling than falling and an east wind fast freshening to heavy we knew it must end at northwest but it lasted till afternoon of the next day so we got a good offing the shift of the wind was in its accompaniments spectacular and cyclonic the morning of the thirteenth was among the wildest i have ever seen daylight came a half hour late with a lurid sky the clouds the confused heaving water the sails spars and deck of the ship herself all as if seen in a lorraine glass it having become nearly calm she lay thrashing aimlessly in the swell unsteadied by the canvas the barometer still fell slowly till two in the afternoon when it stopped and we began to look out first rise after very low indicates a stronger blow at three it rose one one hundredth of an inch and almost simultaneously looking over the weather rail was to be seen the oncoming northwester never long in debt to a southeaster first a gleaming white line of foam beneath the somber horizon gradually spreading to right and left and visibly widening as it drew near soon its deepening surface broke to view into innumerable separate wave crests which advanced leaping in tumultuous accord like the bounding rush of a pack of wolves whom you may see and whose howling you can imagine but do not yet hear as kingsley has said it looks so dangerous and you are so safe all the thrill yet none of the apprehension the new gale struck the iroquois in full force within twenty minutes it had reached its height and so continued for near forty-eight hours during thirty-six of which the hatches were battened down for a time the two seas the old and the new fought each other to our discomfort but the old yielded and as the new got its even regular swing the iroquois agreed with its enemy of the moment and rode easily with our arrival at shanghai we had left behind whatever in the crews of the iroquois could be considered exceptional as to incident that is while i remained with her from december eighteen sixty eight we entered in china upon the usual routine of station movement interesting enough at it the time but from which my memory retains nothing noteworthy subsequently we visited formosa and manila and hong kong whence we were sent south for ten days to the gulf of hainan to search for a french corvette which had disappeared we did not find her nor was she seen again by mortal eyes returning to hong kong we learned of the first election of general grant to the presidency and that a letter from him had reached the admiral asking that the captain of the flagship who as a school comrade had once saved grant's life should be ordered home the attention being to give him charge of an important bureau in the navy department under usual circumstances a relief would have been sent out but as the request was from the expectant administration 
not from the one still in power and antagonistic, a private letter was the chosen medium of action. His departure made a vacancy, to which succeeded the captain of the Iroquois, a great favorite with the commander-in-chief. I was left in charge of the ship until we went back to Japan in May. There I fell ill at Nagasaki, and after recovery found myself at Yokohama in command of a gunboat ordered to be sold. This consummation was reached in September, and I then started for home, having the Admiral's permission to proceed by Suez to Europe, instead of by the usual route to San Francisco. My object was only to visit Europe, but on the way to Hong Kong a Parsee merchant, a fellow-passenger, suggested turning aside to India, which I had not contemplated. I shall not go into my brief India travel from Calcutta to Bombay, beyond mentioning the singular good fortune, as it appeared to me, that I visited the ruined residence at Lucknow, and the remains of the memorable siege of twelve years before, in the company of an officer who had himself been a participant. His wife, still a very young and handsome woman, whom I had the pleasure of meeting, had been one of the children within the works, sharing the perils, if not the anxieties, of their mothers during that period of awful suspense. Nor do I think my six months in Europe, leave for which met me on my arrival there, worthy of particular note, save in one incident, which has always seemed to me curious. Landing at Marseilles, I found that intimate friends were then at Nice, I accordingly went there, instead of to Paris, as I had intended, and, like thoughtless young men everywhere, abandoned myself to pleasant society instead of to self-improvement by travel. My purpose, however, continually was to go directly to Paris when I did leave Nice, for my time was limited, but a middle-aged friend strongly dissuaded me. You should by no means fail to visit Rome now he said, for independently of the immortal interest of the place, of the treasures of association, and of art which are its imperishable birthright, there is the more transient spectacle of the papacy in the pride, pomp, and circumstance of the temporal power. This may at any moment pass away, and you therefore may never have another opportunity to witness it in its glory." There is a vague traditional prophecy that as St. Peter held the bishopric of Rome twenty-five years, any pope whose tenure exceeds his will see the downfall of the papal sovereignty over Rome. Such prophecies often ensure their own fulfillment, and Pius the Ninth is now closely approaching his twenty-fifth year. Go while you can. So I went, in February, 1870, and before the next winter's snow the temporal power was a thing of the past. End of chapter 10